Chris, we got Flint on the line. What do you want to ask him? Both of you guys know multifamily is a team sport. Commercial real estate probably in general is a team sport. And you mentioned you're partnering with operators. I've actually met some of your teammates as well. How do you kind of vet your partners and your operators and you kind of know if you want to partner up with them or they'd be a good fit? How do you look for them? The first few operators, I just happened to fall in with. I've known them for over a year. It just by happenstance, I happened to talk to them on the phone when I was in my very early days of going and getting, doing webinars and teaching myself, you know, the guru programs. Just happened to be on the phone with them one night and we talked for an hour. Months went by, I run into them in person and randomly like we did, we ran into each other at a conference and just kept that going. But while that was going, I was watching them behind the scenes and seeing that they were just taking on some crazy wild deals, but they were knocking it out of the ballpark. So just seeing that was like, oh yeah, I want to work with these guys because they work their tails off and they make unicorns out of something that was worth the dirt. This is the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast, and I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Now, this podcast is designed for the aspiring apartment investor and literally gives them the opportunity to ask the questions that will help them get to the next level. So if you're an aspiring apartment investor, this podcast is for you. Now, this podcast is brought to you by the Tribe of Titans Multifamily Educational Community. It's your one-stop shop for learning how to succeed at apartment investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe. Very excited for today's show. Got two amazing people on the line with us today. We got Flint Jamison and Chris Duffy. So gentlemen, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, And thanks for, yeah, thanks for being on. And it's going to be a lot of fun talking. So listeners know what to expect. Our experienced investors always first. So Flint, how's it going today? And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, it's going great. little background, my day job, I'm still in my W-2. Multifamily syndications will get me out of that soon enough. But my day job, I'm a program manager, formerly an engineer in aerospace. Right now, I manage a, a large program modifying aircraft for the Air Force. Okay. Basically, monster garage aircraft for, for the military. And then got into real estate in 2018. I bird my first duplex back then. That's the only residential property I did because I immediately pivoted into syndications and I haven't looked back since. Yeah. Now, I mean, the the former military guy in me wants to nerd out on the monster garage on airplanes, but I'm going to try to hold off on that and let's, let's keep into real estate. So what got you from, I mean, Aerospace engineering is typically a high paying job. What triggered the move from, you know, monster garaging, you know, F-15s or whatever to, I want to get into real estate? It's kind of similar to a lot of people. It's still a rat race. I mean, I will always love aircraft. I've always been an aircraft geek, but I'm still working to make someone else wealthy. And I'm still grinding day to day for that three to 4% merit. And then hopefully I get a promotion at some point that might be 8%. And I just don't want to work until I'm 59 and a half. I want to choose the the early retirement path. Yet to dive deeper into my why, it's I really want to provide a unique life for my family and children. I want to be able to travel the world and and just live life differently than the standard grind away every day at, at a day job. 
You know, that sounds like what we usually call the big burning why. And since you're on it, I mean, if we talk about your big burning why, is there another deeper level to that or is that basically it? There is. I really want to get to a life where it's less stress. Mm -hmm. The day-to-day grind is is a lot of stress. I don't have peace. I don't have inner peace. Got to get up, got to grind through, get the kids to work, school. I got to get to work. There's stress at work. I come back home. And I just feel like with some financial freedom, some time freedom, location freedom, I can choose to live where I want to live. Mm-hmm. I can live in multiple places a year. I can choose to, to live in Breckenridge and ski in the winter and then go live on a catamaran in the summer. And we can homeschool the kids. We could, once you reach that financial freedom with enough passive income, you get to choose how you want to live life. And at some point you get to give back. Mm-hmm. So one of my give backs, just to keep on the same topic, I think it would be fun to do Engineers Without Borders like Doctors Without Borders, you travel the world and you you help create, say, water filtration systems in Africa. Is that a thing already? Yeah. It's been a thing for a while, for a long time. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, one of the recurring donations I make every month is Doctors Without Borders. I've never heard of Engineers Without Borders. So I think doctors must do a better job at marketing, but yeah, I think that's a great, great idea. And you're, you're talking to a guy, I've spent three years in South America. You know, there, there's a lot of room in, in developing nations for that. And so yes, I, I like it. I like it. And I, I guess I'll throw a shameless plug in there. I think you're you're on the list, but I'm, I'm starting the uh, Six Figure Giver Club. You know, people who I have- I did see that. That's yeah, awesome. People who have ambitions to get to the point to where they're giving six figures annually. Uh, you don't have to be able to give six figures annually right now, but I think, uh, you know, giving an, an event and doing things like that something near and dear to my heart. So appreciate you saying that. Engineers Without Borders. So maybe I'll add them to my monthly uh, donation list too. So yeah, there you go. All right. Well, so, so we hit your big burning why let's, let's go back into, you know, a little more of the story, you know, getting that transition or that, I mean, you're in the middle of your transition right now. You said eventually you're going to leave your job. What were some of the challenges you had getting started in the multifamily business? Yeah, so many. Let's just go to the biggest thing. Just over a year ago, my first multifamily property, we failed. Mm-hmm. Partnered up with some guys, we're all newbie, there's yeah. four of us. Tried to take down a 23 unit apartment complex here in Denver. Mm-hmm. It was a heavy lift. It was C minus property, but it was yeah. it's in a area that's getting heavily gentrified. Mm-hmm. Just a year later, I just heard that the developer came in and tore down two blocks and is building some nice apartments right across the street. Like, oh gosh. So anyway, it failed, failed for a lot of reasons. A slumlord is really hard um, seller to deal with. Uh, We had some, some issues with our lender. We had, we couldn't raise capital. That was the number one. We couldn't raise capital. So then uh, that's how I became a capital raiser because I immediately turned around and got mentorship in that Mm -hmm. arena. And now I'm capital raising. I never thought I would be the capital raiser. You know, it's funny. I never thought I would be a, a capital raiser as well, but that's just how things ended up. We struggled on our first capital raise and we're actually under contract to sell that property right now. You know, so uh, on our first property, I found the property and I was a driver on getting that property closed. So I was I was basically the lead in the, in the group. It was actually my day job that started getting in the way of me continuing doing that. And capital raising ended up being the role that I fell into. But I honestly think that's probably one of the most important roles there is, is bringing the money to the table. I mean, if you have money, you can buy anything. That's really the answer. If you have money and access to money, you can buy anything. 
if you walk to a broker and say, you know, I've got $20 million in the bank, I want to buy that $20 million property. I mean, that broker is going to fall over himself trying to get you into a $20 million property. But yeah. And the other thing about the capital raising piece is it allows me to be remote. So mm-hmm. as a side gig, you know, acquisitions folks, they're flying around the country trying to rub shoulders with the brokers. And I can be remote. It's my side gig while I do the W-2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. And it's a good way to get into the business. I also think it's a good way to partner up as well. You know, if you if you can bring, you know, a million dollars to the table on a deal, there's a lot of people with a lot of experience that that need that. And when you start looking at the dynamics of, of getting bigger and bigger and bigger, if you're buying a $3 million property, it's about a million dollar capital raise. You know, we start adding a zero to that $30 million property, you're going to have about a $10 million capital raise. And when, you, when you're talking about the guys who are looking at the 50 to $100 million range, who are able to tackle those deals and get those deals under contract, a lot of times they need a couple of people to bring a million dollars to the table. If you can fill that gap and you can provide them that need, you can partner up some really, really amazing people. That is a a very good point. I now tell my investors, I'm in a unique position where I'm not dedicated to an individual team anymore as a capital raiser. I get to partner with a whole bunch of experienced operators that do different asset classes in different cities. And I'm, I'm kind of deal agnostic. I'm more specific towards the operator and whether or not I know, like, and trust them. And something about that, you know, you mentioned operator, is that your first criteria? And if so, why? Great question. Always bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm -hmm. The jockey can maximize the horse's performance Mm -hmm. where if you don't have a good jockey and the horse is horrible, you end up in a bad situation. Yeah. So I, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, I think the, the most important thing is the sponsor in, in these deals. And that's, that's something I try to preach to other people. And, you know, especially when I'm raising capital, you know, that, that's one thing that I pay a lot of attention to is, you know, what's the sponsor's track record? What's their history? Because they have a solid track record. They've been in business for five to eight years. I'm going to be pretty confident that they're going to be in business in three years when this deal comes full cycle. With some of the new teams, you know, you you never you never know. Brand new syndicator just formed a team, and this this is me talking more to the audience than than to you right now, Flint. But you know, brand new syndicators with new teams that's that's a struggle. That's something you're going to have to be able to overcome. Is brand new syndicators with no experience. A lot of the investors are going to shy away from that. You've got to be able Correct. to, you got to be still be able to to create that value proposition and figure out a way to bring in that capital. Just because there, there's a risk there, you know how long are how long are you guys going to be together? You know. So mm-hmm. anyway, that said, let's talk about you know some of the deals you've done and pick your first or your favorite. Let's go with the one that I'm currently in the middle of right now. Okay. I'm I'm partnered with a group doing build to rent, mm-hmm. and this was an interesting marriage between a a big developer who does who's classically built communities of homes. Classically, they've been large luxury homes. As the syndicators and the builder get together, they realize there's a there's enormous opportunity in the built to rent space. What we're going to do is build 158 homes in Alabama, and they are starter home size, 1,500 square foot. There's a huge gap or a huge shortage in supply of starter homes. So it's making it very hard for the the younger generations to to bridge from apartments into a house. This makes a a great compromise. 
So it's a lot like a, a community, like a class A apartment building with all the amenities, property management, maintenance on site. But everyone, rather than living in an apartment, they're in their own little single family home with a small front yard and backyard. I think it's a lot more attractive to people as well. And I think I think you're right. In a lot of areas, builders, <laughs> that there's more money. And this, this is true for apartments too. There's a little more of a, of a margin when they're building the, the high-end custom homes. And in apartments, the same thing. There's a higher margin if they're building the the A-class yes. apartments. And so you know, the, the workforce housing, the starter homes don't typically get built. And incidentally, the, the one passive investment that I have outside of multifamily is in a townhome community. And it's because of that exact reason. It's it's the the first time home. And the other thing is it's it's a townhome community that's about two miles that way. So, you know, it's it's in my own community too. And I, I get to drive by it every once in a while and say, I help fund that thing. That's pretty cool. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like the idea. I mean, build the 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 build to rent the or the the starter homes, it's a niche in a market that a lot of people are gonna be into. And so I think long term it's a good, good move. Last question for you before we get to Chris, and that's what's next? Depart the W-2 job Mm -hmm. at some point. To be honest, as I was saying earlier, it's really great position as a capital raiser, and I'm not dedicated to any specific team. I can bring investors to multiple asset types Mm -hmm. like Mm self-storage, RV parks. You and I, we have a friend that does RV parks, and the numbers look really incredible with marinas. I mean... There's, there's all sorts of things. There's the golf syndications happening now. I'm looking for a more diverse portfolio. As long as I can know, like, and trust the operators, I think I can bring some really, really great opportunities to investors. Yeah, I think diversity is is huge. I mean, there's there's a lot of, speaking out both sides of my mouth, I'm still a fan of multifamily. I think multifamily is kind of the anchor of, of everything I do. When you look at different parts of the economic cycle, I mean, in the last 20 years, there've been a couple of years where industrial has crushed everything. There've been a couple yeah. of years where retail has crushed every other thing. There've been a couple of years where multifamilies, you know, crushed the other um, asset types. But you know, when, when you start diversifying, you know, you you get a better baseline a lot of times. You know, you, you might not have the the highs. You might not be able to take advantage of that really really good year in industrial if you were 100 focused. But you also mute the downside too. So lots of good reasons for that, and that's why you know I occasionally do park money in other places. And and our, our mutual friend was actually the one that brought me into that deal. The one you, the one I think nice. we're talking about. Yeah, he he brought me into that townhome deal too. So yeah. So yeah, he 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 got me to invest in in a townhome deal in our our local area, and so far so far so good. But uh, anyway, that said, Chris, you're up now. So welcome and uh, great seeing you today. Thanks for having me, Brian. Honored to be here with you and Flint. I am Chris Duffy, based in Tampa, Florida. Uh, my background is in construction management. I got into that kind of on a whim, not on a whim, but my father did uh, commercial property maintenance. So when I was a kid, I would go to work with him, hanging drywall, doing mm-hmm. various jobs, pressure washing. So I'd at least kind of been around property and real estate, but other than that, never really was exposed too much to it. Mm-hmm. So in my mid twenties, got into building track houses for a national builder, then got on with a commercial contractor, worked on a pretty large multifamily in downtown Tampa, worked nice. on a four- Hotel, then did some custom houses. 
So during this time, I don't, it might've been a podcast. It might've been something, but something triggered, I should buy a duplex or a four unit and I should house hack it. So I should get rid of my living expenses. Mm -hmm. I don't remember where I picked that up, but I got that in my head and I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I'm going to get rid of my living expenses. And then I'm going to start a business or do something. So got pretty lucky, found a two unit here in Tampa off market, bought it, fulfilled my plan of, of house hacking it. And that was when I realized, oh, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to do something in real estate investing. I love construction, but kind of like what Flint was saying, the long-term salary, working for someone else. Uh, my father's an entrepreneur. My mother's an entrepreneur. My grandfather's an entrepreneur. It was kind of in my blood, but I just never knew exactly what I wanted to do. And that first purchase was like the light bulb. Fast forward, dove headfirst in, bought another unit, and then just started getting really serious with the education, the relationship building, started learning multifamily, kind of locked myself in my office here and just started reading books. Just really, that's what it was. Started talking to people on LinkedIn. That's actually where I met Flint. Just started also getting very familiar with my markets here in Tampa. I love Tampa. I love this city. I believe in this city. Great Mm -hmm. real estate market. Very competitive, but great place to be. And just started learning like tons of markets around here. Started becoming a very much so, I guess, boots on the ground guy. And started talking to people sort of in that, through that lens is, hey, you know, I'm here in the market. I wound up getting my real estate license too. Lending myself out as a resource to other investors outside the geography saying, hey, if you ever want to partner up, I'm here in the market. I've got a construction background. I got a pretty good subcontractor base, X, Y, Z. So I wound up partnering up with a couple of investors out of Boston, just kind of almost as like, I don't want to call it consulting, but in a way it sort of was because they would just send me properties. I would analyze them for them. I would comment intelligently to the geography, say, hey, that's a D-class neighborhood. That's, you know, D-class, whatever. And uh, started building relationships with some people through doing stuff like that. And yeah, and then as far as my multifamily journey, I have yet to take down, you know, a true multifamily. I'm in a two unit right now, but it's you know, I, I don't know if I really call it like a true multifamily. Technically it is, but yeah, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I know, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Went really hard. It's, it's a multifamily. Yep. Uh, so basically, yeah, I, um, I've been exploring some other asset classes and educating on them, but not like multifamily. That's kind of what I love and understand. So, so that's kind of my, uh, my journey up to this point. I got into a couple single families up front, you know, and uh, had those for several, several years. And end of the day, you know, I, I think that that's what really got me interested. I, I saw the value increase. I saw the appreciation. I saw, and incidentally, my first one, I bought my first one pre-crash, you know, 2007, right? So I figured, gosh, if, if, if buying something in 2007 before the crash still, still works out, man, you know. I just try to figure out how to scale it in multifamily. But you know, a couple of points. I think your background in construction is going to serve you extremely well in this industry. Your location, awesome. I mean, Tampa's competitive for a reason. And that's something that a lot of people, especially the new folks, don't understand is, you know, if a place is competitive, it means there's some underlying factors that make it a great place to invest. It's harder for new people to get in, though. And that's that's the uh that's the factor you have to overcome. So a question I'd like to ask everybody, what's your big burning why? Yeah, I feel like most people will say family, which is certainly mine. That's the first one. I don't have children. I'm, I'm not married, but I'm very close with my immediate family. And I do plan on having my own family uh, and having children. 
And my family just worked like dogs their whole lives to make sure that my brothers and sister and I always had everything we wanted. And I'm a hard worker. I love to work, but I want to enjoy and always be present. And, and my parents were present too, but at a tremendous cost, I think it's sometimes. Mm-hmm. I am very attracted, of course, to that passive income approach to where I'm controlling my time, I'm controlling my money. In addition to that, I always kind of want to call my own shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have like a huge dollar threshold that I need. I'm, I'm actually, my friends kind of make fun of me. I'm a relatively scrappy guy. I wear the same clothes for years. Like I don't, uh, you know, I'm not really attracted to like toys or things. I, you know, of course I do want nice things, but for me, my dollar threshold is not that high. I just always want to be able to control my own shot, make my own decisions, not, Hey, I got to go to the doctor or I got to, you know, go take care of it. And it was like, you know, it was like pulling teeth just to, yeah. you know, kind of routine, things like that. And that was very like unattractive to me. I was like, I don't want to do that long term. Mm-hmm. I guess the third leg of that would be, I really want to, there's a lot of causes I care about. You know, there's lots of things I would like to contribute to philanthropically or donate to. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that, you know, money is a way of achieving that to support certain causes and yeah. things like that. Something you mentioned, and I don't know why it triggered this. You say you wear the same thing every day. <laughs> Steve Jobs. I don't know if you know about much about him, but he wore the same black t-shirt. I mean, he had probably dozens of them. I yeah. switched to the podcast and I wore this nice shirt, but it's usually a black t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he did every day. And I mean, it's uh, one less thing he's got to worry about every day, but it's actually something I've been thinking about doing myself is just, you know, buying a bunch of the exact same things and, and wearing it. It'd probably be a red shirt with, uh, you know, a, a U on it somewhere. Cause I'm a, you know, Utah football fan, but anyway, that's, uh, that's beside the point. I love the, the, the clarity you had there, the, and what you shared, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff there. Now we're coming to my favorite part of the show where I, I basically hand you the microphone, Chris. So Chris, we got Flint on the line. What do you want to ask him? Cool. Yeah. Well, I had the pleasure of actually meeting Flint in person uh, in Orlando by total coincidence. So it's awesome to be yeah. here with the podcast. Flint, so obviously both of you guys know multifamily is a team sport. Commercial real estate probably in general is a team sport. And you mentioned you're partnering with operators. I've actually met some of your teammates as well. How do you kind of vet your partners and your operators and you kind of know if you want to partner up with them or they'd be a good fit? How do you look for them? The first few operators I just happened to fall in with. The first property I did, actually, it closed at the beginning of this year. I've known them for over a year. It just by happenstance, I happened to talk to them on the phone when I was in my very early days of going and getting, doing webinars and teaching myself, you know, the guru programs. Just happened to be on the phone with them one night and we talked for an hour. Months went by, I run into them in person and randomly like we did, we ran into each other at a conference and just kept that going. But while that was going, I was watching them behind the scenes and seeing that they were just taking on some crazy wild deals. Like, uh, and I say wild as in they were very heavy lift. They were, they were very challenging properties, but they were knocking it out of the ballpark. So just seeing that was like, oh yeah, I want to work with these guys because they work their tails off and they make unicorns out of something that was worth the dirt. But beyond that, you got to review their track record. I get reached out a lot. I'm sure Brian does too for capital raising. And we really have to know, like, and trust them. It's kind of like an investor with us. They have to know, like, and trust us. So it goes back to the track record. Mm -hmm. You got to ask for references. 
someone actually told me a, a, a new trick was ask for a reference from an investor on their worst deal. Mm-hmm. Some of the asking questions, yeah, one, you just want to know how transparent are they? How defensive are they? Are they trying to hide things? When you get into the playing the 100 question game, it could be any question. You want to get confidence out of them, out of all of the questions. And at some point, you got to trust your gut. And out of all those conversations, your gut's going to say, hey, I, I really feel like these guys got it, or I don't feel super confident in them. So out of the, the review of the track record, ask for references, ask questions, trust your gut, I think you can really establish a, a solid relationship, whether you want to try to pursue moving forward with them or not. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add, I think for people who are new to the business, uh, I see I see a lot of people jumping in on the very first deal they can get their hands on. I understand it. I understand that people want to get that traction. They want to get that first deal done. They want to get that check in the box. But going back to what Flint says, I mean, you, you need to make sure that you're doing right for yourself. You're doing right for your investors. And so I, I would say my advice now is probably a lot different than my advice would, would have been four years ago. But you know, try to get in with the best possible sponsor you can, you know, try to reach up as high as you can on that first deal. If you're going to be raising capital for somebody, if you're coming in as a co-GP, try to reach as high as you can and, you know, get somebody with a lot more experience as opposed to, you know, the first deal that crosses your plate where someone's offering to, to bring you in as a teammate. Yeah. Along with that. And I know Brian and I are, we're, we're capital raisers, but Chris, with your background, you could easily step in and be a valuable player on due diligence inspections, right? Get on the ground floor there and, and be part of the general partnership in a different aspect. Yeah. Yeah. I I appreciate that. I think that is how I'm sort of trying to position myself in deals because I took some inventory, you know, on my skills and what am I good at? What am I not so good at? It is a team sport. So what could I bring to the table? What value? And And, and that is, you know, one thing that came to mind as well, okay, not only am I here in the market, but I could be there for due diligence. I have the project management experience, certainly. So I do agree. I think that would play to my strong suit. Yeah, I think Flint hit the nail on the head. And I, I mentioned this briefly, your, your background is going to position you well. Due diligence, asset management, I mean, anything that requires local knowledge, uh, which is almost every part of the deal you're going to be able to provide. And Tampa is a great market to invest in. So if you if you wanted to build, start building your reputation as a Tampa guy, I think you'd be very valuable to a lot of people who are outside of Florida trying to invest in Florida. And there's a lot of those guys. Awesome. Appreciate it. So another question regarding syndication. So syndication was personally me, like I learned what a syndication was a year ago. You know, that was always like, even when I mention it sometimes now to people, they think like a syndicate, they, I don't know, like you syndicate a TV show or something, right? So, and I I think it's a very attractive model. Is it the only, I guess I should say the only, but why is it the most attractive model to you to go after real estate? Are you also doing any JVs or any other structures or I guess, why is that your particular? Yeah, I'm not opposed to a JV. Uh, just for the listeners, let's dive into that a little bit. A JV is a, a small group of people that all collectively jump in on like you and five friends, you can go buy a 15 unit apartment and you collectively throw pool your money together and you collectively have to manage the deal. There's rules around it and you all have to come up with your operating agreement. And it, it's basically like 
this is a great line. I don't, I, I hate saying this, but it's kind of like a small syndication where there's a small group of people that are managing the deal, mm -hmm. but those small group of people also finance the deal and they're the only ones in it. When you branch into the syndication, it's where you bring limited partners in and they're, they're the, the financial backing behind the deal. Mm -hmm. I'm not opposed to JVs. I just really haven't opened myself up to, to going to them. I've had a couple of people ask, but I didn't really like the deal. So the yeah. other piece of that, just adding to this, is likely it's a smaller deal because the five of me and my four friends, we can't buy as big of an apartment complex. And what I really like going bigger is you get economies of scale. Yeah. And I mean, as far as JVs, uh, today's Wednesday, I'm closing on a JV on Friday. There's four people involved. It's a $3.4 million purchase price. And between the four of us, we're bringing about $900,000 to the table. You know, we're we're still waiting for that last HUD statement to finalize our numbers, but about 900000 I think Flynn alluded to it, you know, four people, 900000 you know, people are writing, you know, fairly large checks. In this case, we got one person who's, who's you know, bringing two thirds of the capital to the table, but there are benefits to that. But your deal size is limited to your cap, your your partners. You and your partners is, is what the deal size is limited. What the syndication allows you to do is go as big as you want. You know, and when I say as big as you want, you obviously have to be able to raise the capital. But the thing about syndications is, I can do a JV deal that's sixty units, three and a half million dollars with a couple of people, or I can do a syndication. And do a 300 unit that's $40 million, you know? And when you look at where I'm going to make more money, in general, I'm probably going to make more money as a GP on the syndications than I will in a small JV deal. This particular JV deal started as a syndication. I was coming in as the, the key principal, the only guy out of the four that had experience in multifamily. So as one of the loan suit signers, but when we started looking at assets, resources, what we wanted and things like that, really quickly, we decided to turn it into a JV and it made sense. But yeah, as far as your question goes, you know, Flint said it, I'll say it again. Syndication allows you to get into much, much bigger deals. JVs are a lot of times a lot simpler. Right. On that particular JV, Brian, are you seeing, are you performing out that you're going to see maybe more cash flow on a JV deal because you don't have to clear a hurdle or a prep for your investors. Whereas like on a syndication, you'll, you'll make money on fees and, you know, like the acquisition fee and things like that. You know, six, one hand, half dozen on the other. I mean, when, when you charge the syndication fees, yes, it goes into the GP's pockets. So the GPs are going to make money off of that. They're going to make money off of the promote. But when, when you do a JV, you, you don't have that acquisition fee in there. So you're bringing less capital to the table. Your returns, I mean, that'll actually water down the returns a little bit, right? And so since there's not really a GP LP split, we're probably making more per dollar invested than we would as an LP, you know, maybe not as a GP, but in that particular case, it made sense. You know, it was a, it was a good deal. It's a partnership that I'm excited about. And it's a partnership that I think is going to yield future deals. And to me, that was just as important as the returns that I'm getting. Okay. Uh, I know we were chatting about this a little bit earlier, but regarding the, the switch from the W2, it's obviously a big jump for most people. Flint, are you looking to 
replace your salary from a cash flow perspective or what's kind of your jumping off point, I guess, if you will, to decide to... Yeah, this is one of the biggest questions that circulates around syndicators in our world. It's a hard answer because everyone is very unique. Some people like myself have a spouse that makes a good income and we can theoretically just live off her income. So we can go that direction. Uh, I got a friend who did a small multifamily, like a 25 unit, just him and his wife. And it kind of went full cycle. It appreciated, they they sold it. And then they had like three years worth of savings reserves and they both quit their W-2 and went full time, right? There, there's so many different ways. But really the one way to look at it is what's your freedom number, I guess, is a good way to put it. How much do you need to make? And I think it's really prudent to think about the taxes involved. Because let's say you make $100,000 now, whatever tax bracket that is, 25% or something. So you pocket $75,000 a year. But once you get into real estate, full-time real estate, your tax bracket is much different. You're probably more in the 15% range than the 25% range. So you can take that into account. And then there's also depreciation on top of that where you get to defer some of your capital gains. So you kind of got to work that math, but if you make 100 now, you may only need to, to target 75K a year to jump ship, or you can skinny down a bit more and see if you can get by with less because you can scale as, as soon as it's not just the side gig. Yeah. And I left my W-2 almost a year ago today. I mean, we're recording this on October 26th. And my W-2 paycheck ran out October 31st last year. So one year into it, what I've noticed is while I had the W-2, you know, I, I did three years of a W-2 while I was investing in apartments and while I was, you know, getting GP spots and, and different deals, every penny that I made off of those investments, I was able to reinvest because my, my W-2 paid for all the living expenses, you know, and it got to the point to where I was getting more traction, making more money in real estate. And I, I thought my W-2 was getting in the way. That's really what prompted me. Okay. I really have to exit. I really have to get out of my W-2. But, you know, looking back at it, you know, in the last year, what I wasn't ready for, I guess, was, you know, when these profits come in, you know, it's like, okay, we closed on a property yesterday that we're selling. You know, I haven't got the distribution yet, but I'm probably going to make 60 grand off of that. Two years ago, that 60 grand would have been reinvested in something else. And right now, you know, I'm going to have to take about 20,000 of that for living expenses for the next couple of months. And, you know, now the amount that I'm able to reinvest, we always give money away to different charities, but now the money that I have to reinvest is 50 to 60%. So it is something you have to plan for and you have to realize if you're leaving your W-2 because you, you're going to be building more and you want to use that time to build your, your business faster, you know, just realize that you're going to have to skim off the top every time those checks come in, you know, and that's something that uh, I, I think in the back of my mind, I, I realized would have happened, but it was a lot harder actually doing it. Something that was on my balance sheet as part of my net worth is now, you know, being burned up in living expenses. But um, anyway. there's also, there's also business expenses as well. Mm -hmm. um, and those are some of the things as an entrepreneur, you don't know how much things are going to cost. Like I'm trying to bring on a marketing company. I've been, going down that rabbit hole for two months now, just trying to find the right silver bullet marketing company that I'm willing to afford. And knowing if I jump out of my W-2, that's, yeah. that's going to hurt again. 
Yeah. So, I mean, most people are trying to get out of the W-2 and that, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I would say I'm happier now. I'm less stressed now. You know, the grass is a little bit greener. It's not quite as green as I thought it would be, but it is still greener than where I was, you know, and I've been able to achieve location freedom, you know, live where I want and, and uh, work when work with whoever I want. All in all, you know, I'm, I'm happy I made the switch just there are a lot of things I didn't anticipate, but anyway, we are out of time. So one last question for each of you and Flint, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? Yeah, it's simple. Go to my website, vestuscapital.com, V-E-S-T-U-S capital.com. I've got a, a good guide on there, the benefits and simplicity of multifamily syndications on there if you want to learn more. Awesome. So we'll put that in the show notes, vestuscapital.com. And Chris, same question for you. How can listeners learn more about you? Sure. So website is uh, still a work in progress, but uh, one of the best ways to get in touch with me is definitely on LinkedIn. My name is Chris Duffy. We can put in the chat notes, but Chris Duffy 92 after the backslash. I also have an Instagram where I like to post and just talk about real estate. And that is at Pioneer Property Partners on Instagram. All right. Sounds good. And Pioneer Property Partners and Chris Duffy, we'll put links to Instagram and to your LinkedIn in the show notes as well for anybody who's interested in learning more about him. That said, thanks guys for coming on the podcast today. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast by the Tribe of Titans. If you're still listening, you obviously liked it. So go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a five-star rating and review if you haven't already. And then make sure to check out our YouTube channel, which incidentally has a ton of video content that you'll also enjoy and learn from. Now, if you're interested in being on the show, go to our website, diaryofanapartmentinvestor.com and fill out the questionnaire on the website. And for more educational content and for more information about our educational community, check us out at thetribeoftitans.info.